Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for Thee, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Alleluia! Christ is risen! I would like this morning to persuade you to break one of the Ten Commandments. Now, I know that may sound strange to hear from a Christian pastor, but actually, I almost never keep this one commandment, and I don't think that any of you do either, and I'm glad you don't. Now, in case you're running through the list, it's number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then comes the explanation, six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Now I was here most of yesterday, but Deacon Derek wasn't here. Deacon Robert wasn't here. Father Jim wasn't here. The lectors and the lambs weren't here. The acolytes weren't here. The choir were here. They were just doing a rehearsal, not worshiping. Very few of you were here to keep the Sabbath. You came today, on Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, why is that? How do we explain this move from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. I mean, we're talking here about changing the very law of God. The Ten Commandments, which God Himself, so Moses tells us, wrote in stone with His own finger. And yet that change took place within the first generation of the church. In the Acts of the Apostles, which takes us up to the year 62 A.D., we read three times those Christians chose... Sunday, the first day of the week, on which to worship their God and celebrate the Eucharist. And that first day is even given a new name in the Scriptures, Kyriake, the Lord's Day. Now I want to ask this question. What happened? What happened that influenced Orthodox, God-fearing, Torah-believing, first-century, covenantal Jews to change the keeping of the Ten Commandments? That's a pretty big change. I mean, if you woke up this morning to read that the Pope had gotten married over the weekend, you'd be startled. What happened? Something monumental. Or if you had read that Vladimir Putin not only apologized to Ukraine for invading them, but was being baptized this morning at Evangel Temple, you would be floored. Something big is happening. Or if on your Twitter account you read that Donald Trump apologizing for saying so many mean things about people, and he confesses his resolution to abandon such, yes, you'd be floored. Something big is happening. When some great immovable object not only moves but leaps, why some great force must be looked for. During the Second World War, The Nazis abandoned a critical seaport in northern Africa on the Mediterranean Sea 
but before they abandoned it, they sought to destroy its effectiveness as a military seaport. And so they took these boats and barges, they filled them with cement, they went out into the area um, in front of the city, and then they sunk these barges so only small fishing boats could come in and out, but no deep-hold uh, deep ships. And the engineers wanted to find some way to recover that, but it was too hard. They had not the equipment to lift these things. One engineer went out and he just sat there looking. And he sat there as the tide came in and as the tide went out. And then it struck him. He went out there and he, he had cables run under many of these ships and even through some of these ships. And then he tied the ends of the cables to two dozen ships up above, all of this at low tide. And then when high tide came, it lifted those ships and lifted those barges that were on the bottom. And one by one, they simply took them out into deep water and dropped them. They recovered uh, that as a uh, seagoing port for the Allies. It's that kind of power that must be looked for to explain this astonishing move from the bedrock of Jewish obedience to the Mosaic Law to the unexpected worship on the first day of the week and obedience to something greater than Moses. That something was the resurrected Jesus. And the significance of that new life, the, the promise of that power ranked higher than the act of creation itself. Creation, you see, was what the commandment was to celebrate, that God had created. But this new obedience was recognizing that something greater than creation had happened. Recreation. You see, the old creation was locked into a pattern. There were seven days to each week, and then it repeated. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Repeat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Repeat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And somewhere along the line, some of the prophets began to talk about the word, the day of the Lord is coming. And some Jewish apocalyptic writers, not in the Old Testament, but apocalyptic literature from about the first century B.C., to about 150 A.D., began to write that the day of the Lord was being called the eighth day. That the pattern was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, repeat, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, repeat, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And that day of the Lord, everything would be changed. There's a letter we have it's hard to know exactly where it is. Uh, somewhere between 70 A.D. and 130 A.D. I have this uh, in your bulletin on page 5, just below the sermon title. I want to quote from that letter if you want to look at that. The fictional Barnabas, not the biblical Barnabas, but whoever was using that name writes, Finally, the Lord God said to them, Your new moons and Sabbaths I cannot endure. He's quoting Isaiah there. You see what is the Lord's meaning. It is not your present Sabbaths that are acceptable unto me, but the Sabbath which I have made, in which I have set all things to rest. I will make the beginning of an eighth day, which is the beginning of another world. Wherefore also we keep the eighth day for rejoicing, in which also Jesus rose from the dead, and having been manifested, ascended into heaven. You can imagine that 
the Jews pushing the eighth day suddenly dropped that because the Christians had won at least that part of the debate. Jesus rose on the eighth day. But Christians didn't drop it like the Jews did. Christians ran with it. Christians fell in love with the eighth day. When Gothic architecture was developing, they worked eight into their architecture everywhere. And we still have parts of that. It was a sign of regeneration and new life, all the things that belong to Easter. So go out into the foyer and you will see an eight-sided baptismal font. That's not a coincidence. That's a statement, a tribute to the eighth day. And in many churches, the chalice or the candlesticks at the bottom are eight-sided to celebrate that. The church in which I grew up had eight steps ascending to the altar, a celebration of the resurrection. The old seven-day pattern was locked into a gradual movement toward death, an irresistible vortex pulling everything down into decay, death, and dissolution. And that principle of life is true about almost every realm of our existence. Think about it. Number one, the principle of death is true about our physical universe. Most of you, I assume, are familiar with the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is running down and eventually everything comes to a standstill. This was the thing that troubled Carl Sagan so much. It troubled H.G. Wells. Carl Sagan says we need to jump from planet to planet to planet to keep it going, but one day... There's going to be no more suns with planets where we can go to. And that was for him a crisis of understanding. H.G. Wells had the same philosophy. And if you read his uh, wonderful story, The Time Machine, in one of the last chapters, he falls forward. He goes forward in time to the very end of Earth's life. And he sees one animal that crawls up to this water, drinks from it, and then kills over death. Wells is saying that is the goal of life on planet Earth. The law of, second law of thermodynamics is death. They hoped to delay death, but they could not forestall death. Number two, the principle of death is true about our own bodies. My goodness, I'm 70 years old. My eyes, my ears, my teeth, my joints, my muscles, my bones, yes, my hearing, They're all decaying. The ancient philosophers said that as soon as we are born, we begin to die. One of the first lines of one ancient treatise says, When we are born, we begin to die. The third principle of death is also true of our moral existence. We're born with optimism and hope, almost all of us. But that soon disappears in the face of hard reality Moral and social death. My daughter's graduating class, and this was some 25 years ago, but they took as a class a motto, and their class motto for the meaning of what they believed was, life's a bitch and then you die. Now that would be depressing to hear from an adult or an old person, but these were teenagers. A drunk sits at a bar, drowning himself in booze. The bartender asks him, why do you drink so much? He says, to forget my problems. What's your problem? I drink too much. 
Now we laugh, but we recognize the circularity of that kind of thought, don't we? Depression leads to more depression. Sorrow leads to more sorrow. Jadedness leads to more jadedness. We're stuck. We're trapped. We can't get out. Now, the first Christians recognized that the resurrection of Jesus was not just something that happened to Jesus as though it were good news for Him alone, but something that changed all creation. The second law of thermodynamics might say that the universe is running down, but the first law of the resurrection says that God will make a new heaven and a new earth. The ancient philosophers might say that we begin to die as soon as we begin to live. But the living Lord says that as soon as we begin to die, we begin to live. The psychiatrists and the behavioralists might say that we're trapped in a vicious circle made by our own sins and misfortunes. But St. Paul, who had seen the resurrected Jesus, wrote to the Galatian Christians, if anyone be in Christ, new creation... The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul is so eager in that sentence, he doesn't even slow down to add in verb. He just says, if anyone be in Christ, new creation. That promise is to us. Friends, we are Easter people. We are resurrection people. We are new creation people. I could tell the story of my own biography if I were to ever write that story, it would be in two parts. Before conversion and after conversion. Juxtaposing my world, which was on decay toward death, and then my world, which opened up to life. The claims of death in our life have been annulled. The principles of death have been nailed to the cross. They no longer apply. Are you living there? Are you living in the eighth day or in the old first through seventh day closed system of despair? There's a wonderful analogy told, I'm told this is a true story, that somebody had an aquarium like 10 or 20 times the size of this room, and they had within that simply a, a 20 or 40 gallon tank created by two shells being put together. There were holes in it to give them oxygen and to give them food. And the fish lived in there for a certain period of time. And then, after they'd become used to living in that circular world, they slowly pulled those two halves apart. But they did so ever imperceptibly. It was just inch by inch by inch until finally they were removed altogether. And you will be interested to know that for months those fish continued to swim in that same limited 40-gallon space. They had been introduced to a new world, but they were living contained lives. The claims of death in our lives have been annulled. The principles of death have been nailed to the cross. The boundaries have been erased. Easter people who walk with the living Lord, are freed from death. Not only the final resurrection at the end of time, you're freed from the bondage of death now with all of its habits and with all of its fears. Sigmund Freud wrote a great deal about sex as being the primary driver of life. 
But in his old age, he began to change that and say, really, the primary driver in life in civilization is the fear of death. He never finally developed those thoughts, but he was writing about the fear of death. St. Paul says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. My goodness, I could illustrate this with example after example. I'll give you three. I'm thinking of Hannah Moore. She was a star on Drury Lane. That's like seeing a Hollywood starlet. Uh, Sandra Bullock, Angelina Jolie. Many people considered her the most beautiful woman in England. But she was converted during the Methodist revival and she left Drury Lane. She started an orphanage for girls in Bristol. I have visited that orphanage. It's still there. And she began writing tracts to help these orphan girls become decent human beings and to claim a new life in Christ. Or I think of a teenage college student from atheistic Albania. She and her brother went to college and absolutely had top uh, grades in the university. And her brother was invited to serve in the government of King Zog of Albania. I'm not making that name up. King Zog. It sounds like Marvel comic book, doesn't it? And her brother invited her to come and serve with him. He says, we are going to establish a new kind of government the world has never seen. Join me, my sister, in this great work. But she was a devout Roman Catholic and she said, no, I will not join you. I will go to India and I will be teaching at a girls' school there. He said she was throwing away her life. She went there and she was not successful as a school teacher. But along the way, under the providence of God, she began to take care of the needy people, especially the lepers and the poor. And she took them into her home. She collected some sisters to assist her in this work. And you know who she is. She is Sister Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She's changing the world in a way her brother never dreamed. I think of my own dad. Uh, on the 25th, 27th anniversary of his death in just two days, he died in Coffeyville in a, in a plane explosion. He was flying an angel flight. That's a rather nice name, isn't it? An angel flight. And they would fly people from small towns to where they needed to go in the hospital. People that are near a big city, if they call up and say, we have a liver for you, we have a heart from you, but you have to be at the hospital, you know, in 12 hours. These people could get there. But what about the people that live in Coffeyville, Kansas? So this national organization exists to help those people make it. And Dad was flying one such person and his wife. He took off the plane, crested over a 30-foot uh, um, hedge, landed in a field. They didn't know why the plane landed, but it landed for some reason. And they said, we got a plane down, but it's fine. Nobody hurt. And then all of a sudden, it exploded, and the plane was totally ripped apart. All three people were killed. A fellow from the FAA came up to me at the funeral where I preached and officiated the services. If it's any comfort... Uh, the temperature was over 900 degrees with the plane fuel. Your father would have suffered less than uh, one second. That's less significant than this. At the funeral, the second highest attended funeral in the history of the church, person after person came up to me and said, I want to tell you my story. 
something your dad did for me. My dad was a late convert. He was 27 years old when he was baptized. He was kind of quiet about his faith. And then he got confidence about his faith about 10 years later and began to be just a quiet and then not so quiet witness about his faith. And story after story was told to me. I'll just tell one. A a girl came up to me and she said, "Uh, your dad was my godfather. But she says, you know, I lived a pretty racy life. I went down to uh, Dallas and I was in a totally debauched situation. It was a horrible time in my life. Your dad called me and he said, would you have dinner with me? And I said, Mr. Wilson, I don't think you want to have dinner with me. I don't think you'd approve of the life I'm living. And my dad says, well, no, of course I don't approve of the life you're living. But I don't need to say that. He said, that's obvious. He says, doesn't stop us from having dinner. And so whenever dad was in Dallas, he always tried to look up Annie and have dinner with her. And then her parents, both of them alcoholics, died. And when she got married, my dad walked her down the aisle. And she said, he was my anchor. That's the power of the resurrected Jesus, that you can have that kind of dependable influence on somebody in your life. Friends, I'm declaring that that power that anointed these lives is available to you this morning. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins now. And I know that some of you don't come to church but once a year, perhaps. And I want you to know that I don't condemn you. I don't judge you. I truly don't. I welcome you. I'm glad you're here. But I wonder why you came. I wonder... Like those angels asked the women of the tomb, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not to be found in a beautiful but unbelieved liturgy. He's not to be found in the dusty pages of a Bible that is not read. He is found even now walking up and down these aisles, blessing and touching those who will let him. And if you let him touch you, and may I parenthetically say if you wish to seek out counsel with me or some other clergyman, then he will inject you with newness of life into your marriage, into your friendships, into your family, into your work, into any area of death in your life. And you can walk out of here this morning a new creation. Friends, if you believe it, say it. Alleluia. Christ is risen. And with Him we are risen to newness of life. Eighth day living. Praise God for His unspeakable gift.